there it goes. <laughs> okay, um, great. So uh, just to give you, I'm going to just give you a little introduction here. You're the senior digital producer for Gallagher Associates. And um, in your own words, you love to work at the intersection of design, technology, and storytelling. You have extensive experience in digital development of exhibitions, websites, mobile apps, video production, photo shoots. Um, before you worked at Gallagher and Associates, you worked as the digital uh, director of digital production at the Museum of the City of New York and uh, at the design and develop as the design and development project manager at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and as the digital producer for Penguin Books, and that's just to name a few. So you have a pretty, um, as we were emailing, you mentioned that you kind of have uh, Jane of all trades. <laughs> I think that's correct. Um, I've generally sort of found myself working mostly in producer roles. So I'll be operating at a very high level, um, coordinating a multidisciplinary team across a project from beginning to end. So having a good understanding of all of the bits and pieces that go into making a project, um, all of the different disciplines, um, team dynamics, um, basically being able to bring that together in different domains. Um, is, is generally the, the thing that excites me the most. Um, but part of that also is being able to switch from that big picture view to really hone in on details, make sure that, you know, like as, as a project manager, it's that general rule of seeing things before the rest of the team, being able to clear the way for the team so that they can do their best work, raising any red flags early, <laughs> you know, all, the, all that <laughs> standard stuff. Um, so I, I like that sort of very like interdisciplinary way of working and just sort of being challenged constantly. I feel like every new project comes with a new set of technologies, a new set of personalities, a new subject area. Um, and I really feel like that's the thing that's sort of driven me forward in, in this career and sort of kept me feeling very like, um, you know, like fresh and vibrant and, and everything can kind of feel a little bit new. But I suppose like, um, now having been at this for just over 10 years um, since leaving university, it's also that feeling of, you know, building a foundation, building a general approach to how you're going to take on the next project. So, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a good place to be in right now. Yeah, it sounds like you get to do you get to do a lot of kind of creative coordination. Yeah, I feel that way. I feel very much like if I had to describe myself, it would be as a creative producer. You know, I've never really been someone who just kind of sits back and says, okay, well, you know, here's the scope, here's the budget, um, <laughs> here's our risk <laughs> register, <laughs> all right, you guys take it from here. I, I feel like, um, you know, particularly I think because of my background more in the humanities field and generally being interested in a lot of the sort of subject domains and the, the storytelling side of things, um, I tend to sort of buy in quite passionately to like the content strategy and the user experience. Um, and definitely, like, don't really want to take a back seat on, on the creative as it's rolling out. So um, I think of it a little bit more, like, maybe like the role of sort of a creative producer in the film industry, where they're, you know, very much responsible for budget and scope, but then also, like, have quite um, a leadership role in terms of working with the director and, and other creatives to kind of make sure that that the vision is, um, that the story and the vision is where it needs to be too. That is so cool. It sounds like you just, you get a lot of different challenges. I'm going off a, a little off script here because I'm, I'm so fascinated by your experience. Um, is it ever overwhelming? You know, each new project, 
doesn't sound like there's a recipe for how to approach each new project. Does that ever get overwhelming, or is that part of the fun? I think it's part of the fun for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I I think that there are certain approaches and certain techniques that, that I've developed over time that help me sort of, um, you know, stay calm and stay focused. I think, you know, when I was first starting out, I would feel a lot more pressure and a lot more stress because I was doing a lot of things for the first time um, and kind of come home at the end of the day feeling a little tired and, you know, worn out. And I, I think that's very yeah. common for anyone in their sort of early career phase. Um, sure. I think there are still definitely days like that where, you know, some challenges are just big challenges and you just need to sleep on them. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But generally I feel like the older I get and the longer I stick with it, the easier things become because there are things that might have really rattled me or bothered me when I was, you know, in my 20s and now that I'm in my 30s, it's sort of like you can almost see those things coming and predict them and you know how you're going to respond. <laughs> so Yeah, you it get sounds little, like your early career, yeah. you needed a lot of tenacity to, to stay with it. <laughs> I think so, I think so. It's just a learning phase and, and I think I spend a lot of time learning by doing on the job. Um, so that can be a, a difficult way to do things, um, but also I think it's a really effective way to just kind of jump in, feet first, <laughs> and figure it out. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, because my background was in humanities, I studied, my undergrad was anthropology and human geography, and I dabbled in a lot of art subjects, um, and so, yeah, and then, and then I yeah. ended up doing graduate studies in New Media Arts arts and production, but even having done that, by the time I got my first job as a digital producer in uh, a museum team, uh, I was really kind of learning things from scratch. Um, I had a general approach to how to think about design and interactivity and how to think about content online, um, but the technologies that I'd been using at university were just not up to date with what was happening in the workplace. Um, so, you know, for example, we'd been, <laughs> I, I'm going to sound really old now when I say that I was, I was learning how to do like interactive DVD, um, like DVD-ROMs, um, using like older tools like Director, which was kind of like pre-Flash, um, and, you know, really had a very basic grounding in HTML and CSS, but you know, once I moved into the workplace, everything like the web was becoming so much more programmatic and so much more dynamic. Um, and CSS was really leading the way and like database technologies. And um, so, you know, it was just sort of like, I, I feel like at every step of the way, that's just what's going to happen. And that's natural if you're invested in a career that involves any kind of technology. Um, it's always going to be about, you know, being able to make the leap from what you're used to working with to whatever the next thing is now. Um, and I like that. I think that's, that's really interesting. But I think if, for people who aren't interested in doing that, who just sort of want to maybe do a deep dive and learn, you know, one thing and stick with that and be more of a specialist, um, I probably don't think this kind of, the sort of role that I've had over the years is particularly well suited. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, you, excuse me, you've brought up a lot of topics that I have uh, in my list of questions, so I'm going to jump right in. Um, you mentioned your degree in anthropology and human geography. Um, 
and you said you dabbled in art and you transitioned to digital. How did that transition happen, and how do you think that undergraduate degree in anthropology and human studies affects how you do your job today and how you think about humans in the digital age? Yeah, um, I think you know when I left when I left high school, uh, I was really looking for a very broad kind of liberal education, and and um, and part of that was just sort of being young and, and not and still sort of figuring out what I was interested in. Um, and so anthropology for me seemed like a natural fit because I, you know, love to travel, um, love the sort of cross-cultural experience. And um, I think there's something about the anthropological kind of method and way of looking at the world that just naturally resonated with my own personality. So I yeah I like kind of diving in and learning about new things. Um, I like that anthropologists um, are very much, and I think like human geography maybe even more so, are sort of like big picture system thinkers. Um, so you know with with human geography you're definitely you're basically looking at how um, I guess like how sort of you know human culture um, human societies. And the systems that we create um, really interact with, you know, whole landscapes, whether they be sort of natural landscapes or urban landscapes. So there's a lot to kind of unpack <laughs> in that, um, but it allows it allows your brain to kind of think about this big picture and think about all these connecting component parts and how everything's kind of interrelated in this web. Um, and so I think like now coming into digital. Um, that's a really great kind of skill to have, um, particularly mm -hmm. if we're more focused on service design, user experience design. These are disciplines that kind of draw from that idea of, you know, we really want to see the system as a whole. We really want to understand, you know, what a customer or user experience is from, you know, that very first point that they might find out about you or interact with you through to you know, having gone through all the stages of a visit and, and post-visit experience. Um, and then what are all the things that are kind of like motivating people and connecting people and what are some of the things that maybe don't come naturally or are going to be pain points for people. Um, and I think also considering diversity and the range of um, different backgrounds and perspectives that, um, that museum service, for example, um, is, is, you know, critical as well to understanding how effective your designs are going to be. Um, so I think, yeah, anthropology, human geography really kind of set me up for those sorts of, for that kind of work. Um, and I think a lot of service designers and user experience designers and even business analysts are looking to these sort of other disciplines like social psychology and sociology anthropology um, when they're thinking about how they do research, how they kind of test hypotheses, how they, you know, move a product through like a different, you know, cultural environment, through different geographies, um, what what design, you know, needs to be like modified and thought of differently as a result of those things. Um, so it's been it's been kind of exciting for me because I think when I first started doing anthropology, I wasn't really thinking too much about digital. Um, I was just kind of playing around with the internet a bit in my spare time, like enjoying kind of jumping on chat rooms and talking to people <laughs> in internet chat. <laughs> and just loving that you can kind of have this sort of cultural exchange, you can be connected to people all over the world. 
So personally, it was exciting for me. And then I think I, um, I started looking at part-time jobs to sustain my studies. And one of my first kind of web internet jobs was working with a, uh, like a kind of youth media startup um, where, you know, we were one of those portals where we talked about um, culture and lifestyle and arts and politics and music. Um, and that was the first time that I've really kind of worked with web technologies and worked with a range of graphic designers and writers. And I just felt like it was a very dynamic, very interdisciplinary, very creative, um, kind of exciting environment. And I also loved like the speed of the internet and how participatory it was. So I might go out and write an article that we would then feature on the home page of our website. And then the papers wouldn't really pick that up until a day or two later. So I was always kind of, I, I think I was just initially attracted to like this sort of public communication medium um, that felt very fast and flexible and rich and social. Um, and comparing that to sort of like some of the academic papers I was writing <laughs> that was yeah. just, you know, they were in language that was kind of fairly inaccessible. And I felt like, you know, there's some really important ideas that are being explored here, but they're not being communicated in a way that's really accessible um, to a broader audience. So I think um, I kind of stumbled upon the internet a little bit in that way and felt I just need to do more of this. This is, this is pretty exciting. That is awesome. Um, well, that and that kind of segues into my second question, which is, you know, you um, you introduced me to Medium, the kind of publish, uh, blog, is it a blog, technically speaking, or is it more of a... Yeah, I mean, I think it um, it evolved out of Twitter, and um, it evolved out of a. It used to be a long form um, publishing platform, um, so it was a place where you could go to explore, you know, really important, really thoughtful, um, well written stories in depth. Um, and then it, it sort of became a platform that that opened up. Um, and I think it's a platform that's always really cared about the quality of ideas and the quality of writing. Um, and then it sort of evolved into a community um, and became accessible for anyone to sign up and, and start writing. And I do think there's still something very kind of clean and very focused about Medium as a platform that's, that's very attractive. Yeah. Um, and I think particularly... I loved reading it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I've put a few things up there over the years, and I don't do a lot of, you know, self-promotion or anything like that, so I'm always really surprised when anyone reads anything. <laughs> but it is, it no, is a that I really like. It's really, and it's nice to get that kind of insider, um, insider view of all the different, you know, what you think of all the different projects that are happening uh, in real time in the world. I mean, um, the I especially was interested in your um, you were talking about that project between the Dalai Lama and Paul Aikman that mapping of the of of, of emotions the Atlas of Emotions and you called that the project of a lifetime um, and you have a real sensitivity for cultural and emotional experiences and you know being from Australia and moving to New York um, you know it sounds like this really has affected your your work as much as it would affect somebody's personal life. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair to say. Um, I think when I came along that, um, came across that project with the Dalai Lama, um, I just, I think that project for me embodies a lot of things that are incredibly interesting about collaboration and about the exchange of ideas across 
um, you know, different disciplines and, and even sort of different sort of ideological ways of thinking um, about the world. And so it's sort of, you know, this idea of marrying what the Dalai Lama, um, you know, what his, uh, I guess, like um, ideology and kind of like worldview is with, you know, Western science, scientific thinking um, on this area, which has always been a little bit, I think, more abstracted, like thinking about emotions and how to kind of pin that down in a scientific methodology uh, is incredibly interesting. And then sort of bringing in, a, um, you know, one of the world's kind of like top design thinkers and kind of data visualization experts and looking at just like what can magically grow out of that dynamic. It's, it's just such an interesting synergy, and I think when you when you look at this data visualization that kind of um, maps out human emotions, it's also just a really um, the piece itself feels almost kind of meditative and lovely yeah. floor. Um, so I could, yeah, and just reading, looking at the process of how you know they sat down together as a group and. You know, it's just no judgment. It was just kind of like, let's bring all our ideas together and let's explore this and let's sketch together and really kind of work things through and try to meet that point of sort of creative synthesis. To me, that's just such a beautiful process and such an amazing opportunity um, to be able to work like that. Um, so, and and I think you know, the end product is such a gift as well to the to the various fields. Um, so yeah, I, when I came across that, I just kind of was a little bit in awe. <laughs> um, it's a very cool project, and I was fascinated that the Dalai Lama said that he was unfamiliar that Tibet was unfamiliar with the idea of mood. That's not something that they really think about a lot there. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's you know, and that's interesting because you know the categories and the way that um you know we kind of shape our our thinking is um you know can be very different like that. So. It's um it's beautiful to be able to have that like exchange sort of like Eastern philosophy, Western scientific thought, um, and then design and like the role of design and, and how does that communicate um, this intersection to a broader audience um, around the world. So yeah, I, I one of the things that I love is that sort of um, the magic that design kind of can bring to a process as well, where something can go from sort of thoughts or words or um, something more abstract and then can communicate, um, you know, the right tone, the right emotion, the right feeling, um, create sort of structure for communication. Um, mm. So you can see all of those things happening together on that project and it's quite beautiful. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's that's a good word for it. Um, so moving on to um, the next question I have for you and, and this kind of segues Interestingly, I was after reading your Medium post, I was like, well, I got to I got to see who else is on here. And there's a lot of really cool museum professionals and user design developers on there. And um, I came across one, um, Nikel Blaze. Are you familiar with him? Uh, no, I'm not. No. Well, I was just reading through some of his posts and he had a statement that I thought was rather apt, which was, if a problem is non-existent, the problem becomes meaningless. So uh -huh. I wonder for you um, in your job and all the different roles that you have, what is the problem uh, of museums' digital strategy and how do you see user design and, and the other, you know, the other modes that you work in um, part of the solution and what kind of 
non-existent problems do you see museums wasting their resources trying to fix? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I mean, I think definitely um, that's one of the faux pas of any kind of project or creative endeavor, right, is to be thinking that um, you're to be working very, very hard towards solving a problem and then at the end of that project to realize actually that wasn't a problem that we had. <laughs> that wasn't a problem that we needed to solve and now we've just sort of spent all of this time and all of this money on the exact wrong thing. Um, and have you seen that? Uh, I think to some extent, yes. I think um, that's generally what happens in projects where there isn't a clear strategic goal from the beginning. There isn't like a clear consensus on what exactly are we doing here and why. <laughs> um, and it's amazing how often projects can kick off without that. I mean, sometimes projects can kick off from a place that's a little bit more political, for example. Um, like, hey, there's a board member that saw this other museum was doing this great project and, and we want that too. Mm. And so I see, I see a lot of like me tooism within this little bubble of museums where we're kind of looking to each other for inspiration that maybe uh, sometimes I see a little bit of like copying because that's um, less risky. It's like we'll wait until one of the more innovative, you know, bigger right. museums yeah. jumps out and does the thing first because we don't want to be on the bleeding edge. But once it's been done, then we can show the success that they had down the road and maybe we can garner some money and some, some resources to kind of to replicate something like that here. And so when that is done without thinking about the unique context in which you're working in, so who's your audience, what is your content, <laughs> um, you know, what sort of skill sets do you have in-house to, you know, do something that's sustainable and what's going to be meaningful. I mean, these are the sorts of things that, you know, you should be thinking of as an institution, like before starting any project. Um, but if that doesn't happen, and it's just a little bit like, oh, that looks trendy, that looks cool, I think we need to have a bit of that, then sometimes, yeah, you are working on the wrong project because what works down the road is a different context. Um, you know, every museum is different. Um, and I think like every museum has something kind of unique to offer the world and to offer their audiences. And for me, that's the starting point. It's like what actually sets us apart? Um, what can we do that, that's really different? Um, and then let's kind of work around that. Because to me, that feels like the thing that's going to be sustainable. And in the end, it's going to feel right. Um, so I see a little bit of that. I think like generally any project that doesn't consider audience um, from the get-go, like who's going to be interested in this and why, who's going to use it, is this the right kind of audience that we want to attract, are we just speaking to our existing audience, are we trying to reach a new one, um, you know, there's a lot of those sorts of upfront strategic decisions that need to be very clear from the outset and then I think as the project rolls on, you need to remind the whole team, <laughs> you know, does this link back to our original goals? Does this look mm. back, you know, what we're finding as we did our research phase and our concepting phase? If it doesn't, we shouldn't be doing this. Um, so it's like that constant discipline of um, setting up the goals and then checking against those goals as 
project rolls out um, because there's so many little micro decisions that get made along the way, especially on big, large projects that are really have lots of interconnecting parts. And it can be a real challenge to kind of um, make sure that everything is just moving in the right direction. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh it, it's it's I think a little bit of it is that sort of you know also that quote that you um, just shared makes me think a little bit about the idea of sort of working really really hard at something versus like working really really effectively at something. Right. Um, yeah. And there's, there's this interesting kind of cartoon or quote that I saw a few years ago about sort of the role of the producer on, pro on creative projects. Um, and so <laughs> it was basically the team are in a forest somewhere <laughs> and they've got their machetes and they're just sort of like slashing through the undergrowth and working really hard to like, you know, clear a path and get where they need to go. And the producer has actually climbed to, you know, an, an outcrop and stood on top of a rock and seen the view from there and shouted back to the team, oh, actually, wrong forest. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, that just resonates with me so much. I mean, I'm probably a bit of a nerd, but like, no, I'm no, just no. like, yes, that is exactly what my job is. A hundred percent. Like, are, are, we, are we committing all of this energy and resources into the right thing? And if we're not, we need to correct it. Um, so I think that's where sort of the leadership aspect comes in. Mm, yeah. Well, and that that segues nicely into my next um, my next question, which is from a leadership uh, sorry a little echo there from a leadership perspective. Um, what are the key components that you consider when embarking on a digital project? Uh, you know, obviously you said strategy. If you if you don't have a strategy and you don't have a purpose, but then, you know, getting the team to work together towards a common goal, what are the key components to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it it depends the context that you're working in. Um, I guess, like, uh, in-house, it's more about uh, really understanding the institution's mission and then how this project kind of ties back to that broader mission. Um, and then I think there's there's a lot of stuff in there around kind of governance um, on the project. So, you know, who are the key stakeholders and people who are really supporting the idea for the project and are going to kind of help you to drive this home, um, particularly when things get tough or murky or, you know, more money has to be raised and all the sorts of things that happen on projects. Um, making sure that there's really clear buy-in with those stakeholders. Um, and then I think, you know, sustainability is really important. So making sure that you don't kind of bite off more than you can actually achieve. Um, I think it's, you know, easy to get incredibly excited at the beginning of projects about all the possibilities. But then I think um, it's, in, it's an important skill to be able to kind of like prioritize and and narrow things down to a sharper focus that feels more realistic. Um, so I often do that on projects where, you know, I'll, I'll have my stakeholders together. Um, we'll start to discuss, like, you know, what's sustainable in terms of, like, what skill sets we have in-house, what our budget might be, um, what our initial assumptions are about audience, 
um, and about you know what's going to be exciting, what sort of like um, technologies or you know design work has been out there in the world lately that we think is kind of relevant. So looking at a bit of that sort of comparative landscape um, and bringing that all together into sort of like a kickoff moment where you know it's it's a multidisciplinary kind of look at you know what this project could be. Um, and then I think from there, there's sort of like, there's that reality check. <laughs> um, and I think that reality check comes out of the process um, where, for example, if, you, if you're following a user experience design kind of user-centered process, then you can really sort of look at all the assumptions that you've made as a group and the things that you know, you're excited about internally and then start to test those out. Um, in very quick and easy ways with with, an, with your actual audience and start to get mm -hmm. that feedback. Um, and so that's generally how I would set up most projects is to kind of like start with what are we doing here, what's the shared vision, what are the things that we're excited about, um, what are our assumptions and things that we might need to test to make sure if they're real, are we on the right track? Um, and then what is the team and, um, you know, the different skill sets that we're going to need to, to pull this off? How long is it going to take? <laughs> Can we do it? <laughs> and then how yeah. much is it going to cost? It's all that kind of basic stuff. And I guess that's sort of the same whether you're working as a consultant or you're working in-house, but it feels slightly different. Um, I think, you know, being in-house, it feels like I'm, I'm doing that work you know, very early on, like you're there starting from the beginning and you're dealing more with like governance issues internally as well as thinking about how you're going to set this project up maybe with an external consultant or a blended mix of, you know, your team and external people. Um, working as a consultant, we see, you know, it's more, um, you may be not there from the very beginning, like institutions might have been working on this idea and gathering funding for maybe two or three years or even longer before they get to a point where they've written a brief and it hits the, it hits the you know, studio. Um, and then as a studio, like doing, um, studio sort of producer doing business development, it's then sort of our job to kind of really interpret that brief, try to understand what assumptions are embedded in it. Um, have sort of like open, honest conversations with, with the potential client about, you know, what they're trying to achieve, um, who their audience is, what their budget is, um, you know, if there are any kind of external dependencies or things that we need to be aware of, like really get clued into what the bigger picture is for the project from that perspective um, before <laughs> sort of kicking off and being able to really respond to that brief. So it's, yeah, it's kind of... It's kind of interesting, but I think those components are always the same. <laughs> but yeah. it's slightly different, slightly different for some reason. <laughs> so again, going off script here, do you find that clients typically are, um, I mean, I guess it probably varies from client to client, but do you find that clients will go back and change the brief to be more reasonable if they're overreaching or do you get a lot of pushback typically? How does that typically go? Yeah, I think, you know, every client is different. Um, it's in it, and I think, again, it depends on, you know, things like their level of um, in-house skill or expertise or comfort with design and technology, um, their experience with similar projects or whether they're coming to this kind of fresh. 
Um, and then generally, like you know, how how much time they have have had to really sit down and work on a really good brief. Um, so it depends. Like I think sometimes ideas land, and it's a little bit more of a fishing exercise. <laughs> like the institution may not know exactly what they want. Mm. Um, they'll throw a lot of ideas out, and it'll be a very broad brief with no budget. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, no real sort of like guidelines, um, just a sort of, hey, you know, give us your best creative work. <laughs> We're interested in what can come back. And then well, and that becomes that a very blue sky exercise. Sorry? I said as a designer that must be so frustrating because, you know, when somebody comes to you and they say, oh, well, you know, you're the artist. You know, you <laughs> give us and you're like, I don't. You know, you've got something in your head. I don't know what you want. So that must be a, a little bit frustrating. Yeah. I mean, I think it just feels like a blue sky exercise um, where it's like, okay, you're, you're actually giving us a lot of the – you're giving us control of the reins for now to think big, think large, to have a lot of fun, to be really creative. But if it's not grounded in any kind of, like, practical reality in terms of, like, time or budget um, – or you know what's what's sustainable and possible for the institution in the long run, um, then that exercise quickly becomes not a waste of time, but you know it 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 is time and energy spent. Um, I think you know once we get round to then there's usually a next round after that where the client sort of gets a lot of information back from different agencies or studios, uh, and then that helps them to kind of start to decide actually we want less of that and kind of more of this. Um, so that there's usually a round two <laughs> where then it's like the brief becomes a little bit sharper and a little bit tighter um, and you start to really understand what the parameters are. And then I think, you know, you can bring your creativity to bear within those sort of specific boundaries and, and I think that's much better. In, yeah. In, um, but, you know, the flip side of that is, you know, I definitely have a client at the moment, they know exactly what they want. Uh, they're very savvy um, business strategists, very good at marketing, really understand their audience, um, have done a lot of careful planning for many years before, you know, we were included on the project. Um, they know exactly what they want. <laughs> and so we're sort of following our process um, and checking in with them and making sure that, you know, we're all kind of sharing the same vision and on the right track. But it makes the project incredibly easy. Um, because I think everyone's really thought about audience needs and it's, it's, you know, it's not one of those projects where we're getting sort of weighed down by the weight of everyone's opinions. It really is like we've done the research and we understand what our audience likes and so that's why we need this kind of design or this kind of experience. Mm. Um, and that's just yeah. so liberating. <laughs> it's like a dream project. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounds like um, audience testing is critical to the process, whether you're in-house or working for, you know, a design firm, understanding your audience is extremely important. How, how do you find, what, what are your strategies for audience testing in, in the digital realm? Um, I think it depends. Um, like generally, if, if I'm somewhere where we're, we're very well resourced, so in a studio environment, for example, 
I've been in situations where I've had, um, you know, the ability to work with UX designers, content strategists, and technologists um, in a sort of more of a formal user testing situation where, you know, we've had access to um, basically like testing rooms where we can invite, we can recruit, um, you know, the right kind of audience to come in and sit down and and basically like run them through a clickable prototype, something that feels kind of almost high fidelity and, and true to the intended experience. And, you know, we've had, I've been in situations where we've had the two-way mirror where the client can be sitting on the other side and watching as you're sort of mm -hmm. running the test and, and really sort of getting a sense for, you know, what their potential audience is saying, um, what they're doing, like really watching the body language. Um, and we've even been in those sorts of environments, like we even do things like eye tracking, where you can very clearly, afterwards you've got data, you know, if they said, oh, I didn't see that link and I didn't click on it, you can go back and you can actually see, yeah, there was no like hotspot around that part of the page. They were really looking yeah. at like one third or something like that. Um, that's cool. That's sort of a more sophisticated kind of formal high fidelity sort of testing environment, which is extremely valuable, um, but I think it's also, you know, if you're working in a smaller museum or a non-profit and you don't have a team of user experience people or developers around you and you just can't get to that level um, of testing, there's so much that can be done that's really um, quick um, and informal and just can give you a sense of, um, like, anything that you can do to really get closer to the visitor. Is, is great. So, I mean, that could be something as simple as your marketing team has an e-newsletter group um, and so you send something out on the e-newsletter asking if, you know, um, you know, maybe announcing that you've got this new project and you'd like to have a quick phone call with some potential, you know, visitors to discuss whether they would find it interesting. You know, that might be 20 minutes on the phone with maybe, you know, 10 different visitors just talking through the concepts, um, you know, getting a sense of what they would find interesting, what's kind of a little dull, what their needs might be. Um, so, yeah, those sorts of, like, phone calls can be great. I think just getting out of your cubicle <laughs> and sort of going downstairs and, and walking around the galleries, maybe, like, taking a seat in the mm -hmm. corner and just doing observations. So, you know, if you if you had questions about a particular interactive and whether it's interesting, does anyone even use it, you know, you could just sit in front of that interactive for an hour or two um, and observe. Like, yeah, people are walking up to it and maybe they're walking on or people are walking up well, to it and they're spending 20 minutes there and you're like, whoa, who does that? <laughs> <laughs> So just like the importance of getting out of your comfort zone, like in the desk, in the cubicle, um, and sort of walking around and, and then working with the different teams. So, you know, education might bring in a school group um, and, and you know, you're, you're, work, you're trying to figure out how you can make, you know, the exhibition more accessible for different age groups, for example. So they have school groups with worksheets they are already coming through. It's like you can just tag team on one of those groups and observe and watch the kids' reaction and listen to their questions and then follow up with the educator afterwards and say, you know, what are some of the common reactions? These are the things I saw. Does this seem does this seem normal to you? Like, you know, I think there's just a lot of kind of, you know, 
little interviews and conversations and observations you can have with different um, people throughout the museum um, and, and get a sense of, you know, the, the perspective that other departments have that you don't necessarily have unless you do that walk around. Um, and then finally, I think, you know, another approach that I'm really fond of is starting with the content itself. So you may not have access to a designer to make something visual or beautiful. You may not have access to a developer to mock something up in code. Um, but generally, most of us can kind of start with content. We can start with words and paper and, you know, explain an idea. Um, so there's some really great sort of techniques that you can use. Um, for example, you could have a workshop with a small group of people where you're just using sticky notes and kind of writing up ideas and, and grouping them. Um, or you could do something like a card sort where you're using index cards to kind of write down ideas and, um, and then allowing like a group of visitors to kind of sort related ideas together, you know, to put their own words on things, um, to find like a common vocabulary and a common language. Um, yeah, I just feel like there's, there's a lot that you can do that's very, very simple and very intuitive and, and so much of it is just about basic communication. Um, listening first, <laughs> um, observing, really taking note of um, body language, um, you know, they're, they're just sort of like very, very simple and basic things. Um, you know, generally in any user testing that I've done, we try to get um, the user to talk out loud about what they're thinking as they're doing something. Um, and, and sometimes people can be a little bit polite as well, like they don't want to upset your feelings. Uh, you know, yeah. they, they might like the institution so much that they'll just say, oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, I really love it. And so it's your job then to kind of like really, you might see that their body language is saying otherwise. <laughs> or they look a little bit confused, but they're saying, no, this is really good. So I think it's, you know, then your job to kind of watch those things and to kind of probe into those and say, oh, you know, like I saw that you almost went to click here, but then you didn't. Like, why is that? Or, you know, uh -huh. just try to kind of like dig in a little bit deeper until you start to get the real sort of, you know, the real intent yeah, or the yeah. real kind of answer that you're after. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, so I, your time is valuable, I know, and I promised you this would be 45 minutes to an hour. <laughs> so. I can take a break all day. <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> but I better I better get to some of these last questions here and, and let you go. Um, so uh, there's so many questions. Um, Gallagher and Associates is a it's a new position for you. Um, mm -hmm. What kind of drew you to the firm, and uh, how does it how does it differ from some of the ones you've had in the past? It does look like um, just as a organization, it's structured differently from some of the things you've been involved with in the past. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, the, the role that I have here and, and the kind of organization that I'm working for, for me, it feels like a natural evolution of um, sort of where I've been going over over the last few years. So definitely, it's, it's different. Um, it's like in the past, I've worked for, you know, companies that are more about software development or web design for cultural institutions. So, or I've worked in-house in various like cultural institutions, publishers, broadcasters. Um, and then in my last role, it was uh, it was really the first time that I'd worked 
in-house in a museum and have been responsible for not only what's happening online in terms of you know web design, um, but also what's happening in the galleries in terms of sort of digital experiences there. So um, once I sort of you know really got to spend a couple of years rolling out uh, a, a large scale. <laughs> very interdisciplinary digital project in the exhibition space. I just really felt like this was this was for me. Like this is exactly where I want to go. Um, the idea of kind of um, yeah, wanting to really continue to work on on digital in the physical space um, was really my my lead goal. Um, so when my last project wrapped up, I just thought, how can I do more of this? And my options um, were to either sort of move stay within the museum world, so stay in-house and look for organizations that were starting up new exhibitions or were investing heavily in kind of digital teams. Um, but as you probably know, like that's very hard for museums, even in this day and age where museums are becoming increasingly sophisticated in the sort of digital experiences they offer their visitors. It's still, it's still you know, incredibly difficult for institutions to find you know, the money and to retain the talent to kind of build in-house teams um, in digital. So, you know, beyond sort of digital marketing, for example, I'm talking like digital production, like user experience, digital content strategies, mm -hmm. um, UI designers, that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I just, um, being in New York, <laughs> it's it, yeah. really, the city where, um, you know, there's something that's a little different here in that there are a few a few studios that are design studios set up specifically to work with exhibit design, um, to work with architects on digital in the physical space. It's something that, you know, exists in Australia to an extent, but a lot of the companies there um, are a little smaller and maybe have more of a diverse portfolio where they'll do a bit of exhibits and then they might do like a lot of web work still. Um, so I really wanted to make the most of my time here in New York, like being in a place where there are companies like Gallagher and Associates that you can um, continue to work, work in this very sort of niche space. <laughs> um, it just felt like it's all the things I've been working uh, towards over the years kind of coming together in this wonderful like niche space. Um, it's just such a privilege. It really is such a privilege to have role because this isn't this isn't something I would be doing if I was still living in Sydney or Melbourne. Um, and yeah, and for me, I I think I'm naturally a little bit more suited to being on the consulting side, um, and and so I, I sort of am thriving in this environment. Um, but also having like a range of different clients, a range of different sort of subject matters and and like technologies to sort of dive into. Um, it's, it's just been fantastic. So I, yeah, I definitely feel like um, given where my interests have gone over the last couple of years, it's, it's just wonderful to have landed somewhere where I can really indulge, <laughs> continue to indulge yeah. and build my career in this way. Um, and also, I should just say that the team here in New York in Gallagher and Associates office are fantastic, like wonderful, lovely, um, you know, collegiate sort of environment. So I come in every morning and, you know, I'm smiling and saying hello to people and we're having water cooler conversations. It's just it's a very nice atmosphere. Um, but 
Yeah, it seems that way, and it seems like pro- creative projects like that do require people that love working together. I mean, success is so dependent on that kind of natural, um, just kind of back and forth. So I, I, it's, yeah. it's very, very um, 21st century firm, in my opinion. I think so. I think, you know, like, um, I mean, a lot of sort of project methodologies, um, particularly in the agile world, talk about the idea of self-forming teams. And so, you know, getting away from this old idea of sort of a very hierarchical, bureaucratic organization where control kind of goes from the top down, um, but looking at sort of a space where things are more networked, there's more of a flat kind of um, structure um, that recognizes that every project requires the different disciplines to almost have an equal footing um, and an equal input for the project to be a success. Um, and, and then I think within those that are really self-motivated, um, internally motivated, you know, personally to, to do their best and to see it through, um, then you're going to end up having, you know, successful projects. I really think you know, it, it's those sorts of teams that um, can get a lot done very quickly, um, can weather some of the, the harder times that you might have on projects. You know, when you're getting into the production phase and you're running out of time and you're finding lots of bugs or, you know, things that need to be dealt with or there might be some last minute changes and everyone has to kind of pivot a little and figure out how to make it work. You know, there's, there's always stress and there's always pressure on any project um, and so it, it's for me, it's just fundamental that the team are sort of, you know, maintain internally this sort of internal motivation, um, a really kind of, you know, self-organizing. Um, everyone, everyone can have any kind of conversation, like as difficult as it may seem, like everyone feels empowered to kind of raise an idea or raise a problem or, you know, raise a solution. And, um, and yeah, just the idea that, you know, um, Good ideas and good solutions come from everywhere. So I, yeah. I, I really feel like in the New York team here, we, we definitely embody that in practice. Um, it's very exciting. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it sounds like every day is a great day. I'm, I'm jealous. <laughs> um, so <laughs> just to wrap up, um, you know, I was, I was going to ask, are there any projects that you're particularly fond of, these, you know, digital mountains that you're proud of summiting? But I'm also kind of interested on, like, I know you guys, you know, you're not allowed to share too much about what you're working on currently. Or, but what, what's kind of like your, your dream project? What are you excited about right now? What's, what's that kind of like, oh, I can't wait to get to XYZ goal? <laughs> uh, interesting. Um, so I think, you know, projects that I've been really proud of in the past, uh, definitely the most recent project from the Museum of the City of New York. I mean, that was such a a life-changing both personal and professional experience for me, moving moving from Sydney to New York, um, having the opportunity to work with uh, New York City's best historians, urban planners, urban thinkers, um, futurists and, and scholars of all types to think about, you know, culture, diversity, economic future and sustainability of the city. Um, for me, that was kind of my New York City internship, <laughs> where I basically landed not knowing a lot about New York and very quickly being immersed (laughs) in New York as a subject matter and a lived experience (laughs) and and the biggest digital exhibition that I'd ever had a chance to kind of work on and learn from. Um, So for me, that was just an amazing 
amazing highlight. Um, and before that, I would say it's probably, you know, moving into publishing, like working at Penguin Books, and um, that's, that's just a beautiful heritage brand that I grew up with. You know, I think even I've, I've, I've had moments in my life, you know, low times where I've walked into an old bookstore and picked up a Penguin Classics for $2 and just, like, spent a few hours in a cafe or on the beach just sort of reading you know, an old book. Um, and so to have the opportunity, I never thought that I would have the opportunity to work in that kind of domain. Um, but but because publishers are now sort of moving into the digital realm and, and looking for opportunities to take stories through like alternative channels beyond the covers, um, that was kind of like a dream <laughs> in being able to work with very professional storytellers. Um, yeah about how, how we can sort of extend this online, extend this um, in the like social community experience. Um, so I did some online sort of documentary long form pieces when I was at Penguin and that was just, um, you know, such a lovely experience. Um, yeah, in terms of where we're going, I can say that um, I have a project at the moment um, based in New Orleans. So I'm working for a company called Sazerac House, and um, they're creating a new cocktail experience center in the French Quarter, and oh, I'm cool. very excited about that. I love New Orleans. Um, this project is giving me an opportunity to really um, get a sense of the history and the culture kind of past and present of New Orleans, but also dive into the like food and um, beverage industry. Um, wow. So on a recent... Um, trip down to New Orleans, we got to do things like meet with a cocktail historian at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. <laughs> and, then, and, then, <laughs> and that was breakfast. And then at lunch, you know, we'd go to Napoleon House, which is this very old institution, and try a few of their classic cocktails. Then, you know, we bounced onto Canaan Table where we met a bartender who was really um, part of the new wave, new school of, um, you know, forward thinking kind of like um, bar and sort of culture scene. Um, and then we spent the evening at Antoine's um, with the manager there who is a fifth generation in the family, um, oh. you know, manager of this Creole restaurant, which was one of the first restaurants in, in first sort of French restaurants in New Orleans. Um, and he showed us through all of these private back rooms with all this memorabilia and ephemera just everywhere. Um, and, you know, the wow. old, it used to be the prohibition room and he just, he was full of so many stories and we drank Sazeracs and, you know, <laughs> it's just, well, it's the most, like, amazing project. Um, if I was and, jealous before, I am green with <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not every day is like that, obviously, but, um, it's, they're just such a fantastic client, and um, they've they've secured this really beautiful building, um, which it just has lovely bones to it, and everything is being lovingly restored. Um, so great attention to detail on the historical side, but also there'll be a lot of kind of information and experiences around um, the future of like cocktails and what's what's sophisticated and happening in New Orleans right now. Um, so it's it's just yeah, that's that's something that. Um, I'm very excited about. Very cool. Well, I think that's a really great note to end on. Um, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with me and share your experience with me and 
the other students. Um, oh, congratulations my on everything. It sounds like you have uh, you've really climbed the ladder and landed in a great place, and hopefully, <laughs> maybe get to work with you someday. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely stay in touch, and um, yeah, let me know if you, if your students have any um, follow up questions. Oh yeah, I mean, I again, I could I could probably ask you questions for hours, but um, you know. <laughs> Work away. <laughs> um, so thank you again so much, and um, I'll follow up via email um, with any extra questions. I'm, I'm sure that I'll, I'll be like, oh, I should have asked you X, Y, Z. Of course. That's great. Well, have a lovely day. Yeah, you as well, Renee. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.